Do you like listening to stories about serial killers? Unsolved mysteries? How about a cult or two? And what about those lesser known serial killers? Or how about the legend of a cryptid that will surely keep you up at night? And I know you'll love a good conspiracy theory because who doesn't? Join me, Kayla, as my co-host Lexi and I tell you stories that will keep you coming back for more on our show, A Little Wicked. You can find A Little Wicked on Spotify, Apple, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Check out our website, alittlewickedpodcast.webador.com, and our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all under, you guessed it, A Little Wicked. We can't wait to tell you our stories. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. This episode features graphic and disturbing details of murder. Listener discretion is advised. It's a man's own mind, not his enemy or foe, that lures him to evil ways. This is Method and Madness, Episode 35, The Murder of Colleen Slummer. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call from... The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method. And madness. Investigator Randy York of the Knoxville Police Department will never forget it. That cool morning on January 13, 1995, when he was called upon a crime scene, where at around 8 a.m., a University of Tennessee groundskeeper who was just beginning his shift had discovered the body of a young woman, brutally murdered, lying face down in a pile of debris. The body was in a remote area near the greenhouses of the Agricultural Engineering Building. A trail of blood covered the walking path nearby. Something beyond comprehension had occurred there, and the woman, the victim, had quite obviously fought like hell. She had no identification on her. She was naked from the waist up, her jacket hanging several feet away on a tree branch a sweater hanging off another branch. And her head was so wounded, mutilated, and soaked in blood that upon initial discovery, investigators weren't certain by looking at her if they were seeing her face or the back of her head. Her neck was slashed deep and muscles could be seen through the six-inch long wound. Tied around her throat, was some kind of rag soaked in blood. Her bare back slashed multiple times and a symbol was carved into her chest. Randy York knew exactly what the symbol meant. Let's dive in. I always say, watch your children. Watch who they talk to. Colleen Slummer was born on September 20th, 1975, to May and Michael. In the fall of 1994, she was 19 years old, living in Orange Park, Florida, a suburb of Jacksonville. 
At the time, she was working at the fast food chain Wendy's and ready to make a change. It was time to set forth on a career path to embrace a field that she had passion in, computer technology. Colleen had heard about Job Corps, a program that offered people ages 16 to 24 professional development, skills, and training in fields like automotive repair, construction, healthcare, etc. It was the field of information technology that piqued Colleen's interest. She could earn her GED and get training in something she already had a knack for. She'd often spent her weekends and weeknights playing computer games with her stepfather, Raul, her competitive nature coming out as she jokingly teased that she'd beat him. Colleen looked into the Jacksonville Job Corps campus right near her home, but they didn't offer the computer training she desired. She'd have to look outside her state of Florida, and it was more than 500 miles away that she found the perfect option at the Job Corps campus in Knoxville, Tennessee. It was far, it was new, and a little bit of a scary notion, but she knew this was the opportunity she needed. Colleen, a self-proclaimed computer nerd, signed up for the six-month program, encouraged by her dad who lived in Pennsylvania. And so it was all set. In September 1994, Colleen was leaving her home in Orange Park to go to school in Knoxville. A teenager, Colleen listened to Linda Ronstadt, was comfortable in jeans and t-shirts, spent her time roller skating, doing arts and crafts, and volunteering with organizations that helped those with developmental and intellectual disabilities. Like her mom, she adored kids and had earned money babysitting throughout her teens. She and her big sister, Heidi, had big hearts, and Colleen always made sure that at Valentine's Day or Christmas, everyone in her life would get a gift even if it was a small one. But there was one key difference between Heidi and Colleen. While Heidi had some street smarts and was a little skeptical of others, Colleen was very trusting, naive, and sheltered. May Martinez, Colleen's mom, didn't want to see her go. It was so far, and six months seemed like an eternity. But she tried to be strong and supportive. And so... Colleen packed her bags and said goodbye to her mom, to her stepfather, Raul, and to her baby sister, Sophia. Colleen was on her way. When she arrived at Job Corps in Knoxville in September of 1994, it was not at all what she had imagined. The Florida location that she'd previously checked out but that hadn't offered information technology was similar to a small college campus. Colleen envisioned making friends, having a small dorm room where she could study, maybe write some poetry in her spare time. But this was straight up depressing, a rude awakening. The dorms were located off of Dale Avenue, near the University of Tennessee Agricultural Campus, and there were nothing more than a converted Holiday Inn. Inside, the decor was anything but inviting. In fact, it was grim. Black walls, purple ceilings, graffiti, and unsupervised students that ran amok at all times of the day and night, screaming down the halls. Colleen described the miserable conditions on a phone call with her mom. 
She wasn't feeling so hopeful about her new but temporary home, nor was she feeling welcome in an environment where the cool kids seemed to be bullies. May sympathized with her daughter, but still wanted to be strong for her. It wasn't long before Colleen was facing a new set of obstacles, as it seemed that three of the job course students were targeting her, tormenting her even. Colleen confided in her mom about this too, but she never said the names of the three students. I sat down, virtually, with Colleen's mom. Here is May Martinez. Horrible conditions. Horrible. But she was excited to go, and she was happy. But when she got there, I guess it was okay, but they were bugging her. The situation at Job Corps only got worse as Colleen's belongings started getting stolen right from her room, sometimes right in front of her face, as other students would barge in taunting her. It was a hostile environment, and Colleen's complaints to the administration seemed to fall on deaf ears. It was hopeless. And for what seemed like a completely random reason, Colleen was being harassed by one particular student, an 18-year-old who was studying nursing. She seemed hell-bent on making Colleen miserable. Colleen, who had been described as pleasant and always smiling by one of the program's employees, was dumbfounded. She always saw the good in others, sometimes to a fault, and didn't know what anyone would have against her. With all this drama and turmoil, Colleen was eager to get away for the holiday season, away from Job Corps. December of 1994 came, and Colleen spent Christmas and New Year's with her biological father, Michael, in Pennsylvania. When classes started back up in January, she returned to Job Corps in Knoxville. It was just a matter of weeks now, and she'd be done. It was Thursday, January 12, 1995, when Colleen would have what ended up being the last conversation with her mom. They chatted about the holidays, and May said to be on the lookout for gifts that were being sent by mail. Colleen told her mom that she was headed to Blockbuster to rent a movie with one of her peers. May, do you remember the last thing Colleen said to you on that phone call? Mom, I want to come home. But she couldn't come home because she was in a contract. And she said, whatever you do, try to get me home. And that was the last words that she said. Two days later, May Martinez got a call she never dreamed she'd receive from investigator Randy York. Randy York was the lead investigator for the major crimes unit at the Knoxville Police Department. He'd been assigned the case of the murdered woman found at Tyson Park near the University of Tennessee, Friday, January 13, 1995. At the time, he was a 21-year veteran in law enforcement working in the Homicide Division. His professional background also included being a deputy medical examiner. When Investigator York arrived at Tyson Park that Friday morning, his team secured the crime scene and began collecting evidence. Finding out who was responsible was paramount. And of course, he needed to figure out who the victim was. Without identification, the first theory was that she may have been a University of Tennessee student, but so far, no students had been reported missing. A description of the victim was released, and missing person reports checked. At the morgue, 
the victim's body was being prepared for autopsy. I sat down with Randy York. Here he is describing those first few hours after the body was discovered. I, uh, we didn't have any idea who the victim was. And through the uh, crime scene evidence, we found a uh, pentagram that was actually carved in the skin of the victim. If you're not familiar with a pentagram, it's an upside-down star that that uh, is a sign of Satan. Up, the upside-down points and stuff uh, was to resemble the goat head of Satan. <clears throat> so through that, I left uh, I left a message that any calls coming in involving uh, satanic worship or anything be forwarded me. We didn't let the public know. We didn't let anything out over the news about it. And the next morning, around 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, I got a phone call that uh, someone who was in the job corps uh, was scared because there was a group in the job corps that was involved in Satanism. And I got this call from the, the mother. That's a lot to unpack. A pentagram carved into the victim? The sign of Satan? As Randy indicated, a student unrelated to the murder had complained to her mother about some disturbing activities going on at Job Corps, and just as Randy had hoped, merely hours after the discovery of the victim and of the symbol, a worried mother called the police. Next, Randy headed to the Knoxville Job Corps, where he interviewed some staff and students and asked to see any sign-in or sign-out sheets that they kept to monitor the comings and goings of the students. And sure enough, there was a sign-in sheet filled out from the night before. Four students had signed out just before 9 p.m., but only three returned. Colleen Slemmer had not signed back in. Could she be the victim? What did she have to do with Satanism? The victim was positively identified through dental records as Colleen Slemmer, and her autopsy was performed by Knox County Medical Examiner Dr. Sandra Elkins. These were the findings. Colleen's body was covered in dirt and twigs. Bruises on her body were inflicted between 30 and 45 minutes prior to death. She had a six-inch gaping wound to her neck, as well as ten other slash wounds to the throat. There were so many lacerations and slash wounds inflicted to the back, abdomen, chest, and arms that Dr. Elkins made the decision to catalog only the most severe wounds. There were slash wounds on Colleen's face and the carving of a pentagram on her chest. The doctor noted that the wounds inflicted prior to death were insufficient to render Colleen unconscious. There were defensive wounds on her right arm and bruising on her knees, consistent with Colleen trying to crawl away. The cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head, and Colleen had suffered multiple and extensive skull fractures. Her sinuses and lungs filled with blood following the head injury to the base of the skull and she essentially drowned in her own blood. There was a piece of her skull missing from the back of the head, and in order to determine the cause of death, 
the medical examiner had removed the skull from her body. It was the hardest part of his job having to call the victim's mother. Randy York spoke with May Martinez, and in shock, she traveled to Knoxville to collect Colleen's things, what was left of her possessions, after her room had been ransacked by other students. Meanwhile, working off of the sign-in sheet and a tip from a Job Corps student, Randy York knew who needed to be interrogated. The three students that returned without Colleen Slummer were Krista Pike, her boyfriend Tadaryl Ship, and Shadala Peterson. Were the three of them forthcoming, or did they deny involvement? Krista Pike was the first one I spoke to, and she was real giddy about what they'd done. She didn't want to use Tadaryl's name or Shadala's name, but she was excited. Uh, This was a great thing she did. If only every interrogation of a suspect could be that straightforward. Krista Pike wasn't just cooperative. She was straight-up eager, eager to admit to exactly what she'd done, every disturbing detail. During their conversation, Randy York couldn't help but notice Krista's tattoo, a figure on her chest with the words, Little Devil, under it, and around her neck, a pentagram necklace. She had waived her right to remain silent, gave a full confession to the investigator that very day, and described the murder, saying it was as if she left her body, was floating above it while committing the violent acts. When transcribed, the confession was a 46-page document. In addition to her confession, Krista took the detective to the crime scene and described the nearly hour-long, violent and terrifying ordeal that she and her accomplices had put Colleen through. She was she was real happy of what she did. We went back and video uh, record, uh, recorded exactly what she was she did, and she played both parts. We took her back to the scene, and she played the victim's part and her part. And uh, it, it was kind of strange, but she was really excited about that. Uh, to me, it was probably the greatest thing that ever happened in her life. During the reenactment in Tyson Park, Randy York was stunned to watch Krista Pike, this innocent-looking 18-year-old with a southern accent, essentially put on a performance. She finished it off with a dance, singing in a circle as she said she'd done around Colleen's body. It was a rare glimpse into the final moments of a murder victim, as told by her killer. The details that Krista gave to him all matched up with the evidence found both on Colleen and around the crime scene, although she downplayed the carving on Colleen's chest that it wasn't a symbol, not a pentagram, just a random collection of slash marks. And Krista informed investigator York that the stained clothing she had worn while doing the killing were lying in her dorm room. The motive? Well, she claimed she'd killed Colleen Slummer because she'd tried to steal her boyfriend, that she was tired of Colleen putting the moves onto Daryl. On January 14th, one day after Colleen was discovered, Randy York interviewed Shadala and Daryl separately, and each of them described a motive much different than what Krista described. 
and it had nothing to do with a love triangle. Did Shadala and Tadaral give similar accounts of that night? It was pretty accurate. The only thing she was uh, saying that uh, Colleen was trying to take her boyfriend away from her, that wasn't the case at all. It was all satanic, according to the other two. Tadaral also wore a pentagram necklace while being interrogated, along with a hexagram pin. A hexagram is a geometric star with six points and is a symbol for conjuring or controlling demons. Randy was taken aback by the killer's lackadaisical attitude while describing the murder of Colleen. As his girlfriend had, Tadaral directed the investigator to his dorm room and the clothing he'd worn the night of January 12th. He went into great detail about his interest in Satanism and how he'd worshipped the devil since he was 11 years old. After Colleen was dead, he said he had the idea that she'd make a great sacrifice. When I searched her rooms, I actually found into Daryl's room a satanic altar uh, and a satanic Bible and, and, and other things that was set up as an altar inside his closet. Shadala denied any involvement in the actual killing, but described the night's events that matched her two accomplices. Was she also into Satanism or just an innocent bystander? No, I I think she got into it. Uh, she was one that she liked to be with the in crowd and that she thought that was the end thing to do because there was a bunch of them involved, it's my understanding, uh, at the Job Corps Center that was into it. They were dabblers, what we call dabblers. All three teens were arrested within 36 hours of the murder, and the dorm rooms of Krista, Tadaral, and Shadala were searched for evidence. Although Krista was adamant that she was not involved in Satanism, investigators found a satanic figure on top of her dresser. And she'd signed her confession to Randy York with her name, as well as nickname, Little Devil, with a set of numbers written under it. 2-4-26. 2 plus 4 equaling 6. 4 plus 2 equaling 6. Followed by the final 6. 666. How widespread, how popular was Satanism at this job corps? Well, upon investigation, it was found that there was a small group involved, but it appeared the major players were Krista and Tadaral. So how was it that these two found each other? What was it about them, their backgrounds, that not only drew them to each other, but to worshiping Satan? Krista was born in 1976 in West Virginia to Emil Pike and Carissa Hansen. It was said that her mother was an emotionally unavailable woman that would rather sit at a bar than tend to the needs of her young daughter. Krista's maternal grandmother was apparently an abusive alcoholic, and Krista was raised primarily by her paternal grandmother, with whom she'd had a very good relationship. It seemed to be the only adult in Krista's life that provided any sense of stability. At age 12, Krista's beloved grandmother passed away unexpectedly. This turned out to be a very traumatic experience for the preteen. Afterward, she alternated between living with her mother and her father. Her mother's house was described as filthy, and family members claimed that as an infant, Krista would have to crawl on a floor covered in pet feces. By age nine, Krista was allegedly growing pot in her bedroom, and by age 14 had a live-in boyfriend, 
who she'd pulled a knife on, allegedly because he'd been whipping her. At age 15, Krista was caught shoplifting and sent to juvenile detention. A high school dropout, she enrolled in Job Corps after being released from detention. She intended on studying nursing. There, at age 18, she met Tadaryl Ship, a 17-year-old from Memphis. Tadaryl had lived with his father in Mississippi until he was nine, then moved to Memphis where he lived with his mother, Emery Charlton, and stepfather, Jim. He dropped out of high school in ninth grade, ran around with street gangs, and then enrolled in Job Corps when he was 16. He and Krista met and became inseparable, and it was Tadaryl's interest in black magic and the occult that was intriguing to his new girlfriend. Along with their mutual physical attraction, the pair bonded over an interest in Satanism. Kept saying, let me go home to Florida, let me go home to Florida. I won't say a word. That was her last words. Based on Krista's confession, along with the information provided by Tadaryl and Shadala, here is what happened on the evening of Thursday, January 12, 1995. A reminder that what you're about to hear is very disturbing. Krista had spent the better part of the previous months threatening Colleen, picking fights with her, and spending more time with her boyfriend to Daryl than focusing on school. According to her peers, Krista was always running her mouth, bragging about this or that, anything for shock value. That fateful Thursday, Krista asked Colleen to join her in a walk to Blockbuster that night to rent a movie. Colleen was a little hesitant. Why the sudden extension of an olive branch? Was Krista suddenly doing a 180? After all the torment, this turbulent, one-sided feud, maybe it was finally over? Maybe it would make these final weeks at school more tolerable if they could get along. Colleen's trusting nature bringing her to the conclusion that ultimately, Krista must have good intentions. After calling her mom about her plans for the night, Colleen got bundled up in her jacket and put on black gloves for what would be a chilly walk to the video store. Out in the parking lot, she met up with Krista and saw that it wouldn't just be the two of them. Krista was accompanied by her boyfriend, Tadaryl, and a friend, Shadala Peterson. This gave Colleen some comfort. Maybe it would be less awkward. It was around 8.50 p.m. when the foursome set off on their walk, heading away from the Job Corps dorms and toward 17th Street. They walked toward the University of Tennessee campus, and Krista suggested taking a stop at nearby Tyson Park, where she'd hidden some weed. Into the park and down a walking-slash-bike path they went, farther and farther from civilization. Now Colleen was starting to get nervous. Why were they walking so far? Something didn't seem right. When they were far enough down the path, in a dark wooded area where nobody was within earshot, Krista began to confront Colleen. She accused her of putting the moves onto Daryl and of trying to get her in trouble or kicked out of Job Corps. Now the realization had set in, this was no peace offering. 
Krista wasn't burying the hatchet. But before Colleen could even begin to defend herself, before she could insist that she had no interest in Tadaryl, Krista hit her in the face. For the next 45 minutes to an hour, Colleen Slummer was tortured and beaten by Krista Pike and Tadaryl's ship while Shadala Peterson watched. After hitting her several times in the face, Krista took Colleen by the head and slammed her into her knee before throwing her to the ground and kicking her over and over. Colleen was screaming, asking why she was doing this, and desperate to get the beating to stop, threatened to have Krista kicked out of the Job Corps program. Krista became more enraged and continued to kick Colleen in the head, face, and body, yelling at her to shut up. But Colleen wasn't going to crawl in a ball and wait for it to stop. She was going to fight like hell. She got up, started to run, but was stopped by Tadaryl, who tripped her, causing her to crash to the muddy ground. With Krista cheering on her boyfriend, he hit Colleen's head against the ground. While Colleen struggled, the couple dragged her further away from the path, and Krista pulled out a box cutter from her jacket pocket. Colleen lie on the ground as Krista cut her stomach, and Colleen let out a blood-curdling scream, then struggled to her feet and started to run again. Krista had to stop her, and Shadala was yelling that if Colleen got away, Krista would end up in jail. Krista picked up a rock and threw it at Colleen, causing her again to crash to the ground. Krista and Tadaryl dragged Colleen back to the more concealed area once again, while she pleaded, begged for them to let her go. Krista was furious and becoming more violent. She described to Investigator York that all she wanted was for Colleen to stop talking, to stop fighting back. As she kept hitting Colleen, slashing her body with the box cutter and yelling at her to shut up, she got an idea to keep her from running away. She demanded Colleen take her clothes off. Colleen, her hands shaky, blood pouring from her wounds, and fear in her eyes took off her coat, but could barely lift her pink and blue sweater. Tadaryl grabbed it and forced it over her head. Colleen's bra straps had been cut from the slashes of the box cutter, and she sat there in just her jeans, socks, and sneakers, her bra hanging off of her body. It was around this time that Krista thought she'd heard someone coming and went to check out the path. When she returned to the group shortly after, she said there was nobody there, just as Colleen once again got to her feet and started to run. Krista took another weapon out of her pocket, this time a small meat cleaver. She began slashing Colleen across the chest and the abdomen, and even though she was severely wounded, Colleen continued to sit up and talk, so Krista cut her throat with the meat cleaver. But Colleen still wasn't done fighting, wasn't finished pleading for her attackers to stop. Krista took a rag she'd been using to hold her hair back and used it as a gag on Colleen's mouth. Tadaryl stepped in, took the box cutter from his girlfriend, and began carving a symbol into Colleen's bare chest, a pentagram. He then slashed at her throat until Krista took back the box cutter and carved a circle around the pentagram. Through all of this torture, Colleen was still alive 
still conscious and still fighting back, moaning and begging while Krista taunted her, cutting the crotch area of Colleen's jeans. As the autopsy would later show, many of the wounds to Colleen's body were not stabs made from the box cutter or meat cleaver, but slices. Nearby was a large piece of asphalt. Krista, determined to silence Colleen once and for all, held the rock up and again and again beat it against Colleen's head until there was silence as her skull split in two. Krista then danced, singing around Colleen's body, a satanic dance, before she and Tadaryl dragged Colleen to an area of trees and left her on a pile of dirt and debris. Her skull was shattered. Pieces of bone lie on the ground, and Krista picked up a skull fragment and placed it in her pocket, pleased with her souvenir. She left this part out of her confession to Investigator York and denied she did it when asked. Krista and Tadaryl then washed their hands in a puddle, tossed the box cutter, and walked to the Texaco station on Cumberland Avenue to clean themselves up. It was there that Krista threw away Colleen's identification and her black gloves. Krista bent down and asked her, do you know who's doing this to you? And Colleen gurgled in her blood and said it which was horrible. Yeah. Don't tear up, Naomi. Once the three returned to the dorms, Krista showered, returned the meat cleaver to a friend she'd borrowed it from, and then happily confided in her friend, Kim Iloilo, I just killed Colleen Slummer. Kim watched in disbelief as Krista danced around the dorm room. The day earlier, Krista had told her she planned on killing someone because she felt mean that day. Was she full of it? How could this be real? Next, Krista pulled her souvenir out of her jacket pocket. The next morning at breakfast, Krista sat next to Kim and bragged that the skull fragment was, quote, in my pocket. I'm eating breakfast with it. Other students that day also witnessed Krista's joyful attitude as she proudly showed off her stained shoes, boasting that it wasn't mud they were stained with, but blood. That Tuesday, January 17th, orientation specialist Robert Pollock returned to his office at Job Corps after a weekend of watching the horrific headlines about the students he'd worked with and known well. Colleen had been one of his favorites. Back at his office, he found a jacket hanging on his chair, and he recalled that Krista Pike had been in his office the Friday prior. He immediately contacted the police. The investigative team confirmed the jacket belonged to Krista Pike, and inside one of her pockets was a skull fragment. To Darrell had said the timing of the sacrifice was just right, because the celestial bodies were in alignment, and no matter how many times Krista denied being involved in Satanism or downplayed to Daryl's involvement in Satanism, no matter how she tried to play the victim, the poor girl who was only trying to fight for her man, there was no evidence that there was any morsel of truth to that. In Detective York's opinion, 
and based on the admissions from Shadala and Tadaral, the three wanted a human sacrifice. And Krista targeted the person she'd already felt hostility toward, the one person that could possibly be seen as a threat. According to Patricia Springer's book about the case, A Love to Die For, Satan worshippers, particularly in adolescence, look for ways to get control over their lives or ways to rebel. They believe they can cast spells, raise demons, and that anything they do is right as long as it is in the name of Satan. They live by Satan's philosophy that you, quote, get what you can and do what you want to do. They don't find life sacred. Randy, prior to this, did you have any experience with cases linked to Satanism? <laughs> well, that's the neat thing about it. Uh, a couple of weeks before, I was sent to Jacksonville, Florida, uh, t- to a satanic and deviant cult school. Oh. And I always thought that was odd. And the one of the first cases when I got back was this one. Krista Pike's trial began in March of 1996, presided by Judge Leibowitz. Lead prosecutor William Crabtree gave a memorable opening statement and told the jury, quote, The person seated over here is not some 20-year-old little girl everyone is looking at. This is a vile, despicable human being who has committed a vile, despicable act, the act of murder in the first degree. May and Raul Martinez sat in the courtroom every day to face Colleen's murderer. There was a ton of physical evidence introduced. Colleen's black gloves and the two forms of ID that had been found by investigators at the Texaco station near the University of Tennessee campus, as well as items of her clothing. Photos of Tadaryl Ship and Krista Pike at the police station during questioning, each of them wearing necklaces with pentagrams, just like the one carved into Colleen's chest. And, to May Martinez's shock, presented into evidence was her daughter's skull with the one piece missing. May had no idea that when she received her daughter's ashes, some of her was missing. When the skull was reconstructed into a model, the prosecution demonstrated that the piece of skull found in Krista Pike's jacket fit perfectly into the model. With Krista's trial, there was never a question of if she did it. What was in question was whether the murder was premeditated and what her motive was. The jury heard the taped confession that Krista had made to Randy York, and they were able to read the 46-page transcript of the conversation. The defense, led by William Talman and Julie Martin, was heavily focused on Krista's mental health. One witness, Dr. Eric Ingram, had examined the defendant and determined that she suffered from a very severe borderline personality disorder. I spoke with a psychologist experienced in the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. My name is Dr. Shira Schachtman. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I've been working in private practice for a little over 12 years. And prior to my private practice, I was working in some community health centers. I also worked in a substance abuse center, working with people who would get DUIs, DWIs. Um, So I just have a wide range of experience with different ages, ethnicities, and diagnoses. And you haven't met Krista Pike, correct? 
I've never met Krista Pike, and I'm not here to diagnose her today. We're just here to talk about borderline personality disorder. Borderline personality disorder is characterized as a pervasive pattern of volatility in interpersonal relationships, emotional dysregulation, impulsivity, poor self-image. Um, impulsive behavior would include maybe reckless driving, overspending, substance abuse. Emotional volatility would be regarding daily events like intense episodic sadness, irritability, anxiety, and these can last for a couple of minutes or a couple of hours. Just chronic feelings of emptiness and frantic efforts to avoid real or perceived abandonment. Dr. Schachtman, how does borderline personality disorder align with a murderer that shows no remorse? One of the main characteristics of someone with borderline personality disorder is that they lack empathy. So one would think that someone who lacks empathy probably does not have remorse for their victims. However, a lack of remorse can also be regarding splitting. And splitting is the devaluation and then the idealization of someone. So when it comes to remorse, maybe, maybe that at that time she was devaluing her victim. Dr. Schachtman also provided some elaboration on the diagnosis and hostility. Well, I guess what I wanted to say about hostility was that people with borderline personality disorder will typically get inordinately angry over minor slights, something that someone without the disorder can just brush off. So, Sounds like Colleen's murderer, don't you think? On the one hand, you have Krista and Tadaryl who wanted a human sacrifice. And on the other hand, you have Krista as an individual, an insecure individual diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, who has a fear of abandonment and saw Colleen for whatever reason as a threat, a pretty girl that Tadaryl had shown some kindness to. It was that hostility, combined with her eagerness to please Tadaryl and to hold on to him, her desperation to find some sense of self, thinking it was cool to worship the devil, all of this a deadly concoction which made it easy for Krista to devalue Colleen as a person. Dr. Eric Ingram testified that Krista Pike had a dependence on cannabis and a depressive disorder. In his opinion, she had not acted with premeditation but instead had lost control. However, when cross-examined, he stated that Krista Pike did lure Colleen to the park and she'd brought weapons that pointed toward premeditation. He said the only reason Krista had taken a piece of the skull was to give herself some kind of identity to show off for her friends. Another doctor, a forensic psychiatrist who specialized in satanic rituals, Dr. William Burnett, testified that the murder of Colleen was less about satanic ritual and more about, quote, an adolescent dabbling in Satanism. He then went on to say that the murder was a result of collective aggression, a phenomenon in which people get worked up with emotions and end up engaging in violent activities. On cross-examination, Dr. Burnett said he'd never met Krista Pike. The facts were indisputable that this was a premeditated murder. Krista Pike brought a box cutter and a small meat cleaver along with her that night and confessed to doing so to Randy York. She confided in a friend the day before that she intended on murdering someone. 
And from what I've learned about borderline personality disorder, while it's a contributing factor to Krista's hostile and violent behavior, let's not pretend this was some heat-of-the-moment episode, some fight where she lost control because she was mad about the other woman. Her actions, before, during, and after, tell otherwise. And Colleen's mom is adamant that no matter how rough someone's upbringing is, it's no excuse for murder. The prosecution closed with these words to the jury, quote, The last words she heard before she left this earth were from the mouth of the person who killed her. She had the audacity to ask the question, Colleen, do you know who was doing this to you? The case was then handed over to the jury. The verdict was in, and Krista Pike was convicted of premeditated first-degree murder. The jury found two aggravating circumstances. The murder was especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel in that it involved torture or serious physical abuse beyond that necessary to produce death. And the murder was committed for the purpose of avoiding, interfering with, or preventing a lawful arrest or prosecution of the defendant or another. There was then a sentencing hearing, and the prosecution presented no further evidence. The defense brought in witnesses, Carrie Ross, Krista's aunt, and Krista's mother and father. Their testimonies depicted Krista's troubled life, which lacked proper maternal bonding and where she suffered beatings from ex-boyfriends. Krista's family members on cross-examination also described Krista as a manipulative, pathological liar who was out of control since adolescence. Her father stated that he had reasons to believe that Krista had sexually abused her two-year-old half-sister. As a rebuttal, a University of Tennessee police officer testified about an incident that occurred shortly after Colleen's body was discovered and the crime scene was just being secured. Investigator Randy York describes that incident as one of the things that's always stood out the most about this case. That Krista and two or three others came by the uh, crime scene around 10 o'clock, 10.30, and spoke to the officer who was, you know, that had the area sealed off and stuff, and, and where he was at was where the, one of the trails come in, and they actually asked him what was going on and stuff. And uh, apparently she thought it was cute then, but they were several with her. And it's always amazed me how many kids that actually knew what was going on. There were several kids that uh, had knowledge of this and, and stuff. Krista Pike was sentenced to death by electrocution, the youngest American woman to be put on death row. She's on death row, so it did something right. I think it took like... 90 minutes, uh, if I remember correctly, 90 minutes to convict her of, uh, and put her on death row. And then that was, I think, 60 minutes of that was, they took a lunch hour. So. Shortly after being sentenced to death and before Tadaryl's trial was to begin, a letter written to Tadaryl from Krista was intercepted at the jail. It read, Hey, love, I just want you to know how much I love you. I have 10 months left to live. Imagine that. 
I'd spend every moment with you if I could. Baby, I want you to tell them you lied in your statement and go along with mine. Do you have a copy of mine? If not, I'll get you one, okay? I love you big bunches. Baby, and no matter what they do to me, they can't change what's in my heart. Please write me. I miss you so much. You see what I get for trying to be nice to the hoe? I went ahead and bashed her brains out so she'd die quickly instead of letting her bleed to death and suffer more. And they fry me? Ain't that some shit? Please write me and tell me what you're feeling. Also, tell your lawyer if he wants me to testify for you, I will. Love you for the rest of my life, little devil. Okay. Let's discuss that letter for a moment. It's disturbing in its tone. This was written immediately after Krista learned she would die by electric chair, directly after sitting through a trial where, at times, she squeezed out tears while prosecutors described her heinous crime, and yet, still, no sign of remorse or respect for Colleen. Further, despite her signing Little Devil, she still didn't want to admit that Satanism had anything to do with her actions. She tells Tadaryl to go with her version of the story. If you remember, that version is that Colleen was trying to take away her man. An unsubstantiated claim, but one that, in Krista's mind, makes her a sympathetic character. This letter was read in court at Krista's hearing for conspiracy to commit murder. She was sentenced to life in addition to her death sentence. Other letters were written in what Randy York described as a satanic language. Good thing he'd gone to that training in Jacksonville. When the letters were intercepted, he was able to translate them. Tadaryl's ship at his 1997 trial showed no remorse for the murder and spoke matter-of-factly, just as he had done in the police station during his confession. He claimed he had no prior knowledge of a plan to attack Colleen. Shadala Peterson's testimony said otherwise. Tadaryl was found guilty of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder and sentenced to two consecutive sentences, 25 years plus life. Because he was 17 at the time of the murder, a death sentence was never on the table. Over the years, Tadaryl has appealed his conviction for what he has claimed is insufficient evidence. He'll be eligible for parole in 2028. Without any physical evidence linking Shadala Peterson to the actual killing of Colleen, she was charged with accessory to murder. She'd admitted that she knew Krista was going to confront Colleen in Tyson Park, knew it when they met up with Colleen that evening in the parking lot of Job Corps. Shadala made a plea deal. By admitting she was at the scene and providing testimony against her two co-conspirators, she received just six months probation. But the district attorney, I guess he wanted somebody within inside the uh, the killing itself to to tell what happened. Uh, I had statements from all of them. I had evidence. So yeah, I, I wasn't really happy about the fact that they uh, you know worked something out with her because she got arrested again after that for something I cannot remember. Krista has fought to have her death sentence commuted to life in prison and has exhausted all of her appeals. 
Her defenders have said that there should be no death sentence for, quote, immature, mentally ill, brain-damaged 18-year-olds. Tadarel's ship has reportedly converted to Christianity while in prison. His wife reached out to Colleen's mother in 2021 to extend an olive branch. She refused his request for a phone call. So what's life been like for Krista Pike while on death row? Quiet? Not exactly. She enjoys her celebrity status, reportedly signing autographs. But on a more severe level, in 2001, Krista used a shoelace to strangle a fellow inmate, Patricia Jones. She was convicted of attempted murder in 2004. In 2012, New Jersey native Donald Kohut Jr. was accused of conspiracy to bribe prison guard Justin Heflin to get Krista Pike out of prison. Donald Kohut Jr. had formed a relationship with Krista remotely, and the two would write each other love letters. In one letter, Krista wrote, quote, I want to lick your soul. The plot that Donald and Krista concocted was to bribe a young prison guard into making copies of prison door keys. Donald gave guard Justin gifts like a Gibson guitar and a canoe in exchange for his participation. Luckily, the plan was discovered pretty early on. Sketches of the keys were discovered by prison officials, and both Donald and Justin were arrested. Justin was terminated from his position. May Martinez gets notified of any changes and what the deal is with Krista and Tadaryl in general. She keeps tabs on everything Krista does in prison and, to her dismay and disgust, learned that some of Krista's possessions are being sold as murderbilia, a small industry where the buying and selling of killers' collectibles are done online. It's a for-profit industry, and May has learned that one of these sellers posts things like Krista Pike's underwear or letters online. The proceeds, of course, do not go to the victim's families or toward any greater good. Randy, what do you think people get wrong about this case? Well, yeah, I know there was a, a lot of... Uh, I think the book was written, uh, Love to Die For, and I guess that's catchy because... Uh, and it was a good book, and it was a truthful book, but I think I think the whole thing got wrong about the uh, the motive for for this uh, murder. I think the motive was all satanic, and uh, I truly believe that. And and I don't think that it was a boyfriend girlfriend type uh, deal because uh, there's nothing nothing that I found led me to believe that. May, however, doesn't have much hope that Krista Pike will ever sit in the electric chair. She doesn't see the state of Tennessee going through with it, and that means May will never receive that last piece of her daughter. The skull fragment that to this day sits in evidence at the state of Tennessee, only to be released once Krista Pike is executed. Randy York thinks there's a chance of that happening. Uh, there's a good chance of it, uh, in the state of Tennessee, there, uh, it's my understanding now that they're still uh, putting people to death uh, in the state of Tennessee. So, yeah, there's a, she's still on death row, so there's a good chance of it. I think when she runs out of appeals, and I, and I believe she's just about ran out of appeals. As of this recording, an execution date for Krista Pike 
has not been set. The Job Corps program in Knoxville was shut down shortly after the murder of Colleen Slemmer on April 1, 1995. The building remained and was converted into the Volunteer Studios Apartments until 2015, when the entire building was demolished into rubble. May, how did it feel when that building finally came down? Not really anything, because that's not satisfaction. That's not justice. You know, there's no justice what they did. There's no, no nothing for that. No excuse for what they did. May Martinez and I continue to keep in touch. She feels it's important to keep talking about Colleen, to be her daughter's voice. She still hasn't gotten a sense of closure and won't, she says. There will be no peace until both Tadaryl and Krista are dead. Every day, she relives the loss of her daughter, Colleen, and thinks about her killers sitting in prison with their three meals a day while they grant interviews and continue to lack remorse for their actions. While I was talking with May on and off in 2021, she suffered another devastating loss. Colleen's sister Heidi, who was never able to recover from the horrific death of her little sister, passed away in the fall of 2021 from complications due to COVID. May does volunteer work for Justice Coalition and Slain of Murdered Children. She has warm memories of her daughter Colleen as a kid riding down the street on her big wheels with Heidi, the playful arguing she'd have with her stepfather about computer games, how cute she was in her hostess uniform while working at Red Lobster, a restaurant that May still dines at to this day. It's a pleasant place and brings back memories of a time when Colleen was very much here and very much alive. She has a memorial in her yard dedicated to her daughter and has held on to many of Colleen's things, dolls, jewelry, poetry she wrote. How often do you look at those things? Very often. And I see the garden where she has her little things out there. I watch her plaques out there. I had a plaque made. Somebody offered to make it for me. It's a huge piece of concrete with her name in there and everything and the date she was born the date she died it's really pretty with little rhinestones in it and everything right. we have that and i have a lot of little things out there around it she loved roses so we did a rose garden i miss her thank you to dr shira Schachtman and to randy york for sitting down with me and she'll deny it if you say it to her but may martinez is a strong woman i want to thank her for trusting me with colleen's story and for sharing such beautiful memories. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so if you like it, you can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser, or a five-star rating on Spotify. It helps new listeners find me. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook, too. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.